Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nature Friendly Farming Network podcast with me, Ben Eagle, and my co-host, Will Evans. Uh, this is episode two of the third series, and as we discussed on the last show, we're delving into NWFN's latest report and campaign, which is called Rethink Farming, a Practical Guide for Farming, Nature and Climate. The report focuses on seven areas where farming can help with the climate and biodiversity crisis, soil, water, biodiversity, carbon management, landscape approaches, food quality and prosperity. And we'll be looking at each of these in turn over the next few months. And today it's the turn of everybody's favourite subject. It's soil. And to do this, we are joined by a man who has nearly 20 years of experience of continuous no-tillage farming and is based in beautiful Pembrokeshire on possibly the most westerly no-till farm in the UK, Will Scale. Will, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Um, perhaps we could start off with a bit of an introduction to yourself and, and tell us a bit about your farm and what you've got going on down there. Um, yeah, okay, well I'm uh, in my mid-40s now, uh, so I've been farming for about 22 or 3 years, you know, kind of been making the decisions mm-hmm. since then. Uh, based in Pembrokeshire, um, traditional uh, medium-sized family farm, uh, typical for the area. So I mainly grow arable crops, so we have a few sheep in the winter. I like um, a lot of the farms in the area, um, costs of expansion are quite high. Yeah. So um, I try and diversify. So I've got a couple of holiday lets and I'm thinking of doing a couple more over time. So always, always, you know, looking at my farm as a springboard to, you know, help me do some other things as well. Okay. And is that the farm where you grew up? And, and did you did you always want to go into farming or did you consider other things as well? And I remember my dad always used to say to me, learn something else first, boy, you know, go and yeah. do something else first, which was fair enough. And actually, in my 20s, what happened? I graduated, graduated from Harper Adams in about 2000, and I did quite a lot of travelling. And what I used to do was um, work on the farm in the summer, because we used to grow a lot of potatoes back then. Okay. And I used to go off, um, and in the winter, like for four or five months, I just grabbed my backpack and off I'd go. So whether it be Australia or South America or um, Asia, and it was I always remember a lot of people telling me travel as much as you can when you're young, uh, and all that sort of thing. So I never really went into a proper job, uh, but I think I think that you should never rush to go back to the yeah. farm if you've got one there. Actually, yeah, for sure. And you describe yourself as as a keen conservationist. Have you always had an interest in the environment? Um, and if yes, where did that come from? I was trying to pinpoint where my idea of sort of being a conservationist or interested in the environment came from. I went to um, university in Bristol and um, I only lasted six months because I, I didn't like it and it didn't fit in. I was doing business studies. And I tell you what happened. I pulled out of that course and then I went to my local college to try and find something to do because I wanted to go to an agricultural college because I wanted to drink beer I wanted to play rugby <laughs> and, and and that sort of thing you know that that was what I felt more comfortable with I did a course in my local college Pembroke College called countryside skills okay. and it was fencing and hedge laying and all this practical stuff okay but what I'd realized then 
you know, bird surveying and all, is I started to mix with a few people that I may not have previously done so. So sometimes there were people who are in the middle of their lives, wanted to do something back to the land, or um, some people were really keen on wildlife and conservation. Whereas on my farm growing up, we were much more mainly production oriented, which was exactly right. So that kind of opened my eyes to the idea of what what conservation is or what you know environmentalism is i always like to try and do something different or i always like to try and question why are we thinking in a certain way you know it's quite a traditional thing you know farmers versus environmentalists type yeah. thing and i always say i i always find it strange because ultimately farmers are the are the original conservationists where even despite uh some issues we may have and also, they're the ones who are best in a position to deliver what people are asking for cheaply. I mean, Pembrokeshire is a is a really beautiful part of the part of the world, um, very special place. Uh, interested in what, what kind of wildlife do you see um, down there regularly, um, and are you doing anything in particular to improve your biodiversity there? Well, way way back, uh, say twenty years ago, I joined the. Welsh agri-environmental scheme called Tirgoval, which means um, land care. And I did quite a lot of stuff, um, such as field margins and unsprayed cereals and fallow margins, did a little bit of tree planting, uh, lots of techniques on hedge cutting, etc. And I was, back back at the time, I was really um, optimistic about, you know, I targeted certain species, which I thought I could do make a difference to. And the ones were mainly linnet and yellowhammer. But I did this for about five or six years. And and I actually started to realise that it's not just about doing all that sort of stuff that's that conservation. I started looking at things like soil instead, because I thought, actually, I could maybe do a lot of stuff and have an impact on certain bird species. Um, but actually, I was, I was starting to get more interested in the idea that soil needs to be conserved uh, as much as um, species. So in terms of anything particular to improve the biodiversity, now I actually don't. I don't do anything special. I'm not trying to run a system whereby my wildlife is in one corner of the farm and my farming's in another. I don't um, know if that makes any sense. No, it does. It totally makes sense. And it, it's funny, some of the things you've you've said so far, actually, that that you sort of grew up on a I guess like Ben and I did as well and a lot of people listening on a sort of very production minded farm and and how your mindsets started to change and I think that's it's quite indicative of a of a bit of a turning point I think maybe in farming um let's let's turn to the main subject of this interview which is soil um you've mentioned it there and I I saw you take part in a panel debate a few years ago at Groundswell um where you talked about some of your experiences and knowledge about soil and um, you must have made an impression as you were the first person I thought of to talk on this subject. But when did you first start getting really interested in the ground beneath your feet? You mentioned there that you, you sort of started thinking about it and thinking differently. But when did you first sort of start delving into that? When I left university, I went up to Australia to work on the harvest out there. And, you know, at the time we were, what, 2000, 2001, grain prices in the UK were really low. So I went out there to work and I was looking at their establishment techniques and all that sort of thing. And, you know, everything out in Western Australia was direct drilled because it's so dry. It's simply not economical to 
add cost to their system by cultivating. So I started looking at little little light bulbs go off. So right, okay, why can't I do that at home? Why can't I be cheaper at home to do you know that sort of thing? And that kind of morphed in because I've got this sort of conservation minded feel for things anyway. The more I looked at it, the more I started getting into um, the idea of soil. And when I was looking at um, direct drilling, no-till, that sort of thing, I realised then that actually it's it's it starts with the soil. Everything, you know, not in a sort of um, oh, you know, altruistic way or, or or way of, but you know, to be able to to be able to to be able to do the things that I want to do, I have to have my soil function working yep. in the right way. Yep. So that's that's when I started getting interested, and then kind of 2000, 2001, there was the rise of the you know, the internet developed a lot more. Yep. Can you remember life before the internet? <laughs> I can only, yes. only just at my part. I can, I, I can just about. <laughs> but the the point was, all the things that I wanted to know about about soil were becoming on the internet, and yeah. they, they were say from an article on a farmer in the USA or an article on a farmer in South America. So, you know, whereas before that, it was a lot of textbook based sure. stuff. So you can you could get the knowledge you might not have learned at college, but you could get it in a practical way. So that that sort of stuff really helped as well. Sure. And and for people listening who who perhaps haven't read the books or or, or listened to the many farmers and, and soil experts from all around the world speak on this subject, and uh, you know, there there are a myriad of videos you can watch on on YouTube just why is soil so important and and why is there such a renewed focus on it now from a practical point of view for a farmer a good soil functioning well makes you more efficient and if you're more efficient then you can you know your business is more viable and you know for me we hear a lot of talk about sustainability etc but the most important thing is that my business is 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 viable and that's sustainability for me as much as anything else. Why is there so much focus on it now? I don't really comment on climate change too much because I know I'm not qualified to talk about it. Um, but all I can do is react to what, what each day brings really in terms of the weather or anything like that. So I personally am always cautious about making any claims about carbon sequestration or anything. But I tell you the things that I can see with my own eyes are say soil erosion, I think you know th- things like soil erosion can get very expensive for a farmer. Let's just talk about erosion for a bit. I mean, I don't want to be stereotypical here, but Wales does get quite a lot of rain, um, as as Will will definitely agree with there. Um, uh, you get pretty high rainfall levels there. Um, but uh, was preserving the soil against erosion a motivation for you specifically um, from the start um, with this? I mean, one of the stats in the in the report was that 30 football pitches are lost in the UK every minute due to soil degradation, which is just, that's just astounding. Yeah. And fundamentally it's inefficient. I mean, the interesting thing is with soil is that the smallest pieces of soil, the smallest soil colloids are the ones most likely to erode either through wind. You know, if you see somebody going through a field with a power arrow, you see a cloud of dust and that goes to see the smallest, lightest soil colloids colloids are the ones sort of flying away they might well deposit themselves somewhere else um and for water erosion you can see often it's the it's the smallest particles that are going to move with the soil that's why you know water's all brown you know you don't get a stone floating down you just get these 
you know. And the thing is, the smallest soil collides are the most fertile parts of the soil as well. So the fertility, although it's it's fertility is maximized when everything is aggregated, fertility isn't really in the larger bits of stone or whatever. It's in the smallest soil colloids. So every time, and I I I, I have a thing where I think once you can see erosion, then you've really got a problem. I think most most of the time erosion is happening and we and we can't even see it unless you sort of really tune yourself to looking at it. I mean, there are a lot of people who would not recognise erosion. They just do not recognise it. And I think fundamentally, it's just a waste of money and it's a waste of resources. I mean, we should keep our soil in our fields. That's why I sometimes um, you hear about people saying, oh, we have field margins at the bottom to stop the erosion. You know? Well, no, it, do it doesn't stop the erosion. It collects what is already eroding. So. That's why I'm really keen for NOTA. Try and keep everything in its place. Soil is meant to be covered. Try and keep the soil in its place because it's more efficient for us. Yeah. Let's talk about your Nuffield report that you did in 2006 uh, called Mulch-Based Agriculture. Why did you decide to look at this in particular and what kind of uh, response did your report get? Well, what I wanted to do about 2006, I was getting into you know, the whole no-till direct drill. And there, there are a few farmers in the UK doing it. And some of us were using the internet to get together and, you know, chat about it and all. But what I wanted to do was find out people who'd been doing it a lot longer and finding out, you know, how they were getting on. So I kind of titled the thing myself, mulch-based agriculture, because what I was finding was from all the research I was doing, was that uh, especially in climates which are less humid than ours, um, so i.e. they get less rain, uh, they were very into the idea of using cover crops and everything. But back in the day, the word cover crop wasn't so popular in 2006. They were just called you know, green manures or they were talking yeah. about the, the mulch and that sort of thing. So I use this word mulch, which... I don't know, when I was doing my method, it kind of amused everybody, or oh, mulch man and all this, you know. <laughs> but it, it, it's a bit like, it's a funny, it's a, it's a weird word that we don't really use a lot now. And it's it's kind of a bit outdated, but I suppose the, the cover cropping idea has got rid of it. But it's the, the, the idea of using that, the interface between the air and the soil surface is where all the exciting stuff is going on pertaining to soil fertility. So that's where your earthworms are, you know, bringing in the residue. Um, that's where all the, you know, the bacteria gets enough air to be able to function. You know, you've only got to go 12 inches down or, or, or even less on a lot of soils to know that actually not so much exciting is going on down there. It's all at the top inch, two inch. Yeah. So, you know, you've heard, you may have heard people say, you know, our civilization rests on that thin layer of, you know, one inch and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, what I wanted to look at. And what I really wanted to find out was how the people were, would, how, the, how the people who were doing it and really enthusiastic, how they were getting on, how, how were they making it work when other people said, oh, it doesn't really work, you know, and all that sort of thing. And so I went out to South Dakota 
which is very dry, very cold. Uh, I went to Paraguay, which is very warm, very wet. Um, and I sort of did a, you know, compare and contrast on those areas. And what I did find out was there is always some fundamentals. Uh, one is that you don't often learn from your neighbours, which is a kind of weird thing that, you know, if somebody's enthusiastic about something, they don't tend to go and ask their neighbours, how are you doing, how are you doing that? <laughs> what, what, what you're finding is that the people who are, um, who sort of started to pioneer sort of the no-till thing in the 80s tended to, you know, they'd, so the, you know, my contacts in South Dakota would have known my contacts in South America because they'd all, you know, cross-referencing ideas. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to get in on that scene, really, and, you know, find out how, how they were doing it. So I did, I went up there and, you know, spoke to quite a few different practitioners and, you know, nearly always the answer was the same. It's mainly mindset. Um, nothing's perfect. Um, it's not like, you know, one other thing we always get, like, oh, no till, it's not a religion. You know, you haven't got to, no, you don't. But the whole, what you're trying to do is manage your farm into a situation where you can no-till everything. And the reason you want to manage them, everything in that direction, is because it's in your interests, be it financially, environmentally, or, or whatever. Whereas, for example, in South, South Dakota, I discovered that they needed cover crops to capture the snow in the winter because they, it's so dry in the summer. So they need a lot of cover crops to do that. Uh, and of course, they've got much more of a April to September growing season. You know, they don't really. Uh, but whereas in Paraguay, things were growing all year round, but they get a lot more um, evapotranspiration because it's you know, basically what would be rainforest area. Yeah. So what I, did, what, I, what I found in the end, the principles are the same. Try and keep the soil covered all the time try and have a good rotation, try not to do too much driving in the field, try and keep the soil growing with roots. Roots are the, are the, are the key. Um, those principles were the same in South Dakota. They were the same in Paraguay. And I've done a lot of traveling over the years. They're the same in, they're the same in Finland. They're the same in Syria. They're the yeah. same in Australia. The, the principles are the same. You will always have to, and they're the same in West Wales. The, the only thing is you will you have to adapt a few things. So once you get your head around that, everything starts to get quite a lot easier. So, so bringing this back to Pembrokeshire, when you finished the scholarship, how quickly were you able to implement some of the knowledge that you'd gained um, onto your own farm? And, and, and what kind of results did you begin to see and, and how quickly did you begin to see those results? Well, what I did was before I did my scholarship, I bought a no-till drill. I imported it from the USA. Um, so that was a John Deere 750. It cost me about 6,000 uh, pounds. And I've still got that drill to this day. It's probably about 25 years old, maybe more. But the thing is what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to, a cons trying to do what I call a conservation technology on my farm. I do have the odd issue with that drill, but it's a really, really good drill. But I'm trying to keep it going i can rebuild it disassemble it rebuild it as much as i want and get spare parts and adaptations 
And I'm always trying to think to myself, because I'm trying to run a conservation technology, I'm trying not to get sucked into, oh, I want a new drill or I need this and that, because I'm trying to um, keep things lean here and try and prove that you can do stuff, you can do stuff with relatively low technology. You know, you don't have to invest lots and lots of money. You don't have to invest lots of horsepower. So, I mean, I've got a, a 2009 tractor of 137 horsepower and my drill is three meters wide. So that tractor does all my drilling and spraying on about 350. I'm going to say it's about 450 acres a year because I do a bit of double sowing. Okay. And that tractor's done about 2,000 odd hours. So my point I'm trying to say is that, you know, my tractor hours are really low because I don't want to be investing in tractors. You know, yeah. I, want, I, want, I want the, you know, to invest in other things, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm sorry. So I went off on a tangent there. That's okay. No, it's so, a really, really interesting point. It is. Okay. So in terms of implementing, I'd started, you know, no-tilling and I'd made a, I started doing a bit of stuff on my farm and I made a lot of mistakes. Most of them were, well, all of them are management. Like whenever something goes wrong or you have a crop failure, it's quite tempting to go on that crop failure, go back to tillage or something like that or, or whatever. But it's not really a healthy viewpoint because I was trying to think, well, what decision did I make somewhere that made that go wrong? Because why did it work in this field and why did it not work in that field? And it could be a any number of reasons it could be slugs or it could be um oh herbicide carryover all these sorts of little things that go on but the, the biggest problem i got wrong in the first two to three years was that um i wasn't looking after my grain drill properly so i didn't have the discs sharp enough and all that sort of thing so i realized then that every four years i have to replace the discs on my drill and if i didn't they wouldn't be able to cut a slot to put the seed in so lots of you know so I had to just, I had to learn the hard way on that. And sometimes with with growing crops, you only get one chance a year. So, you know, I definitely had a bit of a steep learning curve. I've also made a lot of mistakes with cover crops in that I'm coming to the conclusion that, or I probably come to it a while ago, really, that actually large cover crops are just not necessary in the UK. Large cover crops that you you think that the soil needs to sort of consume by the worms are just not necessary um and it's all to do with our climate we've got quite a mild climate all year round and it means it's humid which means that things don't break down so quickly whereas in uh or you could say australia or south dakota you go from very cold to mm. pretty warm straight away so things break down um so sometimes when you read about cover crops and that sort of thing that that that's not really necessary because the other thing with Britain is that we're quite lucky is that we've got a lot of deep fertile soils so we've had them you know courtesy of the ice age etc we've been left with a very generally a really good soil which is probably many reasons why people you know live in Britain in the first place way back because yeah. it's, it's such a you know a, a kind environment growing things so you know whereas Soil erosion has always been seen as a sort of necessary byproduct of growing crops for us up to a, you know the past 25, 30 years. And we can get away with it because the soils are so deep. In terms of uh, the not so the knowledge I can start applying all, all the things that I'd learned on there. Um, and the results have generally over the years been pretty good. 
Um, I always say to people, you know, so what about the yield and all that sort of thing? And I say, honestly, you know, because I don't have yield monitors and all that, and, you know, I can't record, uh, you know, yield in the same way that somebody could if they were doing a trial site. So I, can, I, I feel I can honestly say sometimes my yields are better than if I'd cultivated, sometimes worse, but they're mostly the same. You know, I've had some great second wheats that I could never have grown before no-till and you know i've had some things that have gone wrong but it's generally a, a, a perfectly viable technology to be getting on with um i mean I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that it's okay to make mistakes and that you've made some because I, i've i've literally just moved to a no-till system this autumn um first time after deliberating for a few years about it and I'm, like you i spoke to lots of farmers who've done it and so far, so good. The crops look great. Uh, although it's, I think it's helped that it's been a very kind autumn. But um, we saved a massive amount of diesel and time drilling them. But, yeah, making that change is quite daunting because the system we've always used, whilst imperfect, kind of works. But um, I, I'm really glad you said that it's okay to make mistakes. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I, I'm quite encouraged by that. I think, I think you know, a lot of farmers perhaps... I don't know. Maybe we, we maybe we all need to hear that. I guess. I think the thing is, it's you know, look, it's 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 new, and there is a lot more people about do, doing it now. So you know, that's fair enough. But you, you, I can definitely tell you, there will be times where you, you know, where something hasn't gone quite as well as you hoped, and you know, sometimes it might be that actually you need to cultivate a field or anything you know something like that it's just it's just the way it is but um it's not for everyone either yeah and, it, and if a farmer came to you a farmer like me came to you and said I, I've, I've been plowing and power harrowing for years um i'm really interested in in going down the no-till route i'm getting more conscious of my soils and soil health but i, I don't even know where to start with it all how would you advise me to begin with making the change what, what should what should i do the first thing i do the first thing you should do is take five days off work and go and set up a little tour for yourself and go around the uk and speak to as many no-till farmers as you can and that would be from cornwall to kent to lincolnshire to scotland to wales and just spend half a day with each farmer and the reason i say that is because i you know you do learn so much up another farmer if you're interested in that topic and the other good thing is that what you can also learn is that if somebody's making a claim about something you can see it with your own eyes and you made a, you make it make an assessment that that's not the way you see it hmm. um so you know the, the thing about you know i can say what i like about you know no-till blah 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 but that's on my soil on my farm and the more you can go around and speak to other farmers, you can, you know, you can get the idea of what what doesn't work or what are they what are they overlooking? So I've been lucky. I've always had a chance to go around and visit lots of farms and see what people are doing. And so I can take a little bit out of each of each of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so valuable to not look at the drill or the, or the tractor or even don't need to talk to an agronomist about it straight away. Just go and visit some farmers that's great great advice um now we all know i hope that direct payments to farmers are being phased out throughout the uk um, and new public money for public goods environmental schemes will be brought in 
um, different different in different parts of the UK. Um, do you think, and this is this is a general soil question here, do you think that soil health is a public good? And so should farmers be rewarded for having good soils on their farms? And if so, how do you measure that, et cetera, et cetera? It's a really tricky one. It's a can of worms. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. You got, uh, that's our title there. That's well. the title of the podcast there. But... <laughs> I mean, I... I used to not agree with the principle of subsidies, etc. And now I have changed because actually I realised that almost all primary industries are subsidised. Almost all manufacturing industries are subsidised some way or another. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, for a lot of reasons, it's good strategic, strategically to keep an element of subsidy. However, it's, you know... Um, put in it, it just does help with a bit of stability i didn't used to think that i used to be like oh you know free market and all that but i think uh i think we need to be but i, I still actually think for the three billion a year or whatever the cap has been spending in the uk it's it's, it's pretty good value especially when i you know, when you see what else is being spent on but I, I i find it very difficult to know how you would how you would choose which farmers to pay and which ones not to pay. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't really do anything about oh, percentage of organic matter. I could just see so many problems with that because some soils are always going to have less organic matter than others. It just depends on their cation exchange capacity uh, and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, and organic matter isn't the be all and end all. You know, a lot of people get excited about rising organic matter. It's a good part of the, uh, you know, sorry, but actually, you wouldn't want a soil beyond ten percent organic matter because it would be really quite difficult to produce any agricultural produce in there. So it's it's a problem, yeah. actually. Um, and and the other thing is actually, I'm I'm because of where I'm in Wales. You know, they're talking about moving to a new kind of support scheme, but nobody seems to have any idea what's going on. And I'm, you know. And there's mutterings of no-till getting a payment, which would be welcome, but it'll be interesting to see how it's um, enacted. But I, I, yeah, it's a tricky one. It's hard to plan long-term at the moment, isn't it? Because it's all kind of vague promises and hints and rumours, as you've said, and none of us really know what's going to be happening um, in two or three years' time, do we? Finally, Will, we're... um, we're asking every guest this question um, and you can interpret it however you want to, but what does rethink farming mean to you? I think for me, it still, it still comes to a back to being um, as efficient as you can with your resources. If we, if farming, you know, we try and look at farming as a sort of circular system and it's absolutely in our interest to make sure that, all of the inputs we use, we use as efficiently as we can, whether it's mm-hmm. diesel or um, external fertilizer or um, anything like that. And I think, you know, given that inputs are going up, it's absolutely in our interest to keep trying to keep trying to find ways of, of maximizing efficiency. Because if we can maintain our efficiency, we can we can still remain viable uh, on the farm. Yeah. So, you know, and that's and that's important then for um to be able to do a lot of the other conservation work, etc. Okay. 
Well, that's all we have time for. But um, massive thank you to Will for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the show if you haven't already and leave us a comment or review. It really does help with spreading the word. We'll be back in a fortnight when we'll be talking about water. So it's goodbye for now and we'll see you next time. <laughs>